Ready to roll. Rolling. Yeah, so let's just run through this one more time, guys. Uh, one short bleep for obscenities, two bleeps when I'm being ironic, and one long bleep for when I actually mean what I'm saying. That's the code I run at work, and that's the code I run with my girlfriend. That's Ben Wallace a British songwriter introducing a live set with a gag about censorship that features a long bleeping tone for his supposed moments of honest songwriting. It's an in-joke he's making about the bent satirical mission of his evil country band of the 90s and 2000s that he called the Country Teasers. And while that band wrote some of the most horrid parodies I've ever heard, this episode turns later to another form of crude songwriting through a vaudeville artist named Lucille Bogan. She sang perverted lines about bootlegging, sex work and sleeping around as far back as the 1920s. Nothing pleases. I like country teasers. I'm Max Easton and this episode of Barely Human is about obscenity, lyrical subversion and the slippery slope of satire. This series has spent a lot of time looking at antagonism and the instinct to defy cultural norms but it's in this episode where we find even more crossed boundaries, this time through the power of words. The idea of trying to change the world through parody goes as far back as the 18th century, when Jonathan Swift wrote the famous essay called A Modest Proposal to Eat the Poor. That began a long tradition of hiding social criticism under veils of irony, and the most well-known clash between satirists and the establishment occurred in the 1950s. At the time, comedian Lenny Bruce was arrested and charged with obscenity over and over again, and he spent much of his career mocking his court proceedings on stage, like the time he was thrown in front of a judge for saying the word cocksucker. Your Honor, he said blah, 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 the judge. He said blah, blah, blah. <laughs> That's right. I didn't believe it. There was a guy up on the stage in front of women in a mixed audience saying blah, blah, blah. In the 50s and 60s, the obscenities of people like Lenny Bruce were under attack by the dominant culture in defence of conservative Christian values. If you spoke about fucking or doing drugs or swore loosely or criticised the fucking church or state, you might have been arrested for obscenity or blasphemy. Countercultural figures used arguments based on the idea of free speech to fight this crackdown, and the trial results contributed to winning a number of social freedoms. This victory of free speech over censorship loosened the lips of writers, comedians and musicians, and in the decades to come, the boundaries of what you could get away with would get looser, so the antagonists had to see how far they could push them. It's hard to say when this form of free speech reached its inevitable limits, but by the 90s, misogyny, racial vilification and homophobia all somehow began to fit into the realm of the free speech argument. It became present in mainstream culture, on TV, in Hollywood and in music, and in time a very different free speech argument began to develop, a new obscene that's a long way from that of the 60s counterculture. Nowadays, crude word selection and bigoted messaging is categorised under a broader term of the problematic, and it's becoming increasingly resisted. Yet a number of satirists fight for their right to use whatever language they please. 
And that's an interesting switch. At some point, this new argument for free speech was joined by the conservative right. Well, Mr President, people do have a right to be bigots, you know. In a free country, people do have rights to say things that other people find offensive or insulting or bigoted. The institutions and establishments led by conservative governments and right-wing commentators aim to defend their right to be bigots and exhibit prejudice, while the progressive left sought to restrict the foul use of hate speech. So, of course, the Billy Human series was going to stumble across a musician who stood right at the centre of this tension. When I began to think about this idea of the new obscene and the notion of the satire defence, there was one songwriter who immediately sprung to mind. Ben Wallers and his evil country band, The Country Teasers, had a social lyrical stance that aimed to parody, satirise, mock and make fun of all forms of bigotry under the guise of destroying all human life. They represented horrid viewpoints through the characters of their songs, and in turn, their records featured some of the foulest lyrics I've ever heard. And while I do love the band, even if somewhat shamefully, it's made me wonder if there's any place for shock and hate in the 21st century. This discussion is a difficult one, so we should start with the response of a repulsed audience member who interrupted a country teaser show in the mid-2000s with hands on their head by screaming... The country teasers began jamming in the UK in the early 90s, playing around with loose punk ideas that surrounded the wonkiness of bands like their heroes, The Fall. They eventually adopted elements of two of history's most marginalised genres, wrestling the guitar and vocal sounds of country music and then driving the repetitive beats of rap through their post-punk format. They'd eventually sieved that sonic language to the low-fidelity sensibility of the 90s garage revival. The band was made up of a number of players over their 15-year lifespan, and while this episode skims over most of them, the most well-known lineup was generously introduced on 1999's Golden Apples. so-called perfect image of mankind was their unpredictable front person Ben Wallers who drew almost all of their attention. He would dress like a caricature of himself in an oversized cowboy hat with wide steel-framed glasses casting a scrawny figure under tailored suits. In later years this would take the form of three-piece military rags with the name of pornographic rap star Cool Keith spray-painted across his back and underneath all that he had a neat shirt and tie. With this postmodern mashup of appearances, he found the perfect visual accompaniment to the band's sound. With their cut and paste job appearing on a 7 inch single called Anytime Cowboy, a look at the misogyny of John Wayne type nomads. Their sound was infectious, strange and interesting, but it was all window dressing for what Wallers was turning into a concerted lyrical battlefront. It was there on Anytime Cowboy, but the first real sign of his subversive bent came in 1995. The pastoral, not rustic world of their greatest hits was released on garage label Crypt Records, bizarrely as a 10-inch vinyl. 
While that's now an unfashionable format that had a brief resurgence during the Garage Revival, the Strange Record announced their mission statement. From the drunken figure of anytime cowboy to the more deeply misogynistic satires like Oh Nurse, and a song that Wallace now refuses to play live, which was called, and I'm sorry, Bitches Fuck Off. The content of songs like these was supposed to problematise the tropes of the country singer, but the veneer of satire in a song that crude isn't totally clear. When the line, I'm tired of bitches bitchin' appears on a song called Bitches Fuck Off, well that's not exactly socially redeeming. And I don't know if it's saved when it tries to drive home the point on the record, with a cover of Tammy Wynette's desperate plea to forgive an unfaithful husband on Stand By Your Man. The combination of this provocative approach and the band's unique sound gave them a mythical status in and around the underground communities of Britain and abroad. In 1995, the band went on a European tour with American Garage Act The Oblivions, an event that became infamous for the drunken antics of country teasers. They were soon known as a group of perma-drunk Brits on the piss, berating the bands they opened for and weaseling out of the ensuing fights. As Country Teasers toured, Wallace began developing his characters in his songs while also responding to real and imagined criticism. It was the 1996 record, Satan is Real Again or Feeling Good About Bad Thoughts, where he began singing back at his imagined backlash. This was a very real complaint he had about the people who would later begin to call him out for his songwriting. There's a lot of talk these days about satire itself being used some modern phrase like called up, called out. People are calling out satirists. In other words, saying, um, do you really think you are serving any purpose saying those horrible things that you're saying? So I just had to look up satire in the dictionary to see if I really knew what it meant and, and um, and it has a specific perk to highlight ills and bad and things that are bad, immoral. And um, so that's like carte blanche to say whatever you want, if that's what you're doing. And that is what I'm doing, even though you might not know that's what I'm doing. But again, if you don't realise that's what I'm doing, then, then you're my enemy. The band were highlighting ills in their music, and songs like It Is My Duty would harp on about a responsibility to satirise bigots in order to enlighten the world, but the music that was to come would get increasingly questionable. On Satan Is Real Again, there was a song about the benefits of being a man in patriarchal society, and there was another about a race change operation that enabled his character to have better sex. And with songs like these, Wallace was moving from critiques of misogyny and bigotry to racial stereotyping. Satire or not, the confusion of doing this through a medium meant for entertainment was hairy, and his questionable racial takes would soon find an unusual home. 
Country Teasers' 1999 LP, Destroy All Human Life, was released on Fat Possum Records, the label that started with the purpose of releasing the music of R.L. Burnside and the Hill Country Blues players. The label was beginning to release more contemporary music by garage and indie bands after their success with their Burnside and John Spencer experiment, but Country Teasers on a blues label was going to be an uncomfortable association especially when the record featured the most horrific parody they'd ever write. Women and Children First is a song that's set on a sinking ship and sung from the perspective of the boat's manic captain. At first, the captain seems to be singing calmly across the boat. Before he assembles his passengers, presumably to safety... The song references the patronising tradition of protecting the weak as a priority, reflected by the seafaring policy of evacuating women and children before the able-bodied men on board. But in the song, there's no lifeboat to walk onto. In this inversion, the women and children aren't being rescued, but executed. And a big language warning on this, but it's not just women and children that Wallace is set up for murder. Women and Children First was the song-based genocide of everyone on the vessel except for the young white men. It was a game of satirical inversion that put an exclamation mark on the song lyrics of the band's discography. But in combining both hate speech and this horror show sentiment, they wrote a song that's almost impossible to defend. Even with a direct but exaggerated line to Jonathan Swift's modest proposal... The band's association with Fat Possum in the period of their most vile takes on race was an uncomfortable one then, especially when it came to having country teasers go on tour with R.L. Burnside. Either nervously or defiantly, country teasers played their support sets straight, with all the racial satire and hate speech included, and I don't know what R.L. himself thought of it, but his grandson and drummer, Cedric Burnside, stormed the dressing room after the teasers finished. He kicked the door in and stood over the band, shouting, You think you're a bunch of badasses using language nobody ought to use? If you're cool, then I don't give a shit, but if you're assholes, then I'm going to break your fucking legs. The band only released one record on Fat Possum before they moved on to garage label In The Red. It was in this more comfortable home where they released their final LP in 2006 a record with a cover and title ripped off from a book called The Empire Strikes Back, Race and Racism in 70s Britain. While there were more outlandish satires, it thankfully spent most of its time targeting something they probably always should have, the imperialism of the United Kingdom. You know, I'm uh, a product of, um, you know, the empire, The Empire Strikes Back featured attacks on centrists and rationalists on points of view in Hitler's and Churchill's, and then went to a suburban space drama called Mos Eisley, which compared the British Empire to that of Darth Vader. Ben Wallace was hitting his points largely without devolving into unnecessarily offensive hate speech, which was maybe at its best when attacking British domestic policy on Your English. 
record was a parting gift, and the country teasers have more or less stayed inactive since its release, existing as a quiet reference point in underground music circles. Ben Wallers continued and still does perform under his solo moniker of The Rebel, releasing dozens of records with a similar satirical mission and a more experimental musical approach. But if it seemed the country teasers were done with, in 2018 a secret new country teasers album began circulating among networks of fans. It was their first album for over a decade, released informally on a CDR, and seems like it's going to stay that way, floating somewhere in the ether like an idle threat. Whatever anybody says says on the cover of this album, this is the new Country Teasers album, W Gas, uh, which stands for Who Gives a Shit. I still don't know how I truly feel about the Country Teasers. Despite some obviously problematic songwriting, they continue to sit in a grey area for me, maybe shamefully. When I first read an interview with Ben Wallers where he defended his songwriting approach by saying, You can't just say, Racism is bad. I did kind of agree, but latching on to the right to say naughty words is difficult to stand by with any certainty, because at the end of the day, the music of country teasers was never really about social change, was it? And even if at some point it made me pause for thought about misogyny or racism in songwriting, what good does that do for the women and people of colour facing on-the-ground prejudice and discrimination every day, only to find out that their friends are listening to this shit? Maybe this form of satire has run out of time, because I do think that any free speech argument that defends hate speech is ultimately fraught. It might be hard to reconcile with history because I do think there have been eras where dabbling in the obscene had redeeming qualities. And to show that, we should go back almost a century to a time when a woman from Alabama was writing blues songs that were not just titillating, but defiantly obscene. Her name was Lucille Bogan, and she spent her entire life as an unknown innovator of the blues, recording her first song in 1923. You need a new slogan. I like Lucille Bogan. The 1920s was the first decade when recorded music truly came into the home. Radio broadcasts could now reach the living room and recorded music formats became accessible when in 1925 the 10-inch shellac disc was standardised at 78 RPM. Soon afterwards, record players became a staple item of the home. With this new market... Record companies began searching for new talent to put to record, and they'd look further from the long-protected cultural institutions, away from operas and orchestras, to find the first of the hitmakers. Like any art form that becomes industrialised, a community standard was established, met, and protected, but those newly established standards didn't stop a group of musicians from seeing what later became known as the Dirty Blues. It was some of the first recorded blues singers who started a tradition of joke lyrics hidden under double entendre. One of the best-known examples of this was iconic blues player Robert Johnson, whose 1936 song Phonograph Blues 
used a busted record player to stand in for his erectile dysfunction. But there were people who predated that flaccid spirit by almost a decade with something far dirtier. And that brings us to Lucille Bogan, probably the most obscene songwriter of the entire Barely Human series. There aren't a lot of hard facts about Lucille Bogan, but a few have tried piecing together her story from her birth in Mississippi in 1897 through to her long and surprisingly fruitful music career. At some point in her teens or 20s, Lucille moved to Birmingham, Alabama, married and raised a kid, and in this time frame, she became interested in that city's growing blues community. She began singing in the vaudeville style, and at the age of 26, she had a chance to record her music, which was an incredibly rare opportunity in the early days of the recording industry. Columbia Recording Corporation announces the introduction of a new record in 35 In the early 20s, labels and studios were confined to the larger cities. But one week in 1923, representatives of New York label OK Records went to Atlanta to record some local talent in a makeshift studio downtown. Lucille saw the announcement in a local newspaper, and she travelled up from Birmingham to wait on the street outside the studio. And somehow she got in that room and took her shot with a song called Don't Mean No Good Blues. song and it was the first ever recording made by a black singer outside of New York or Chicago and it was good. OK Records liked it and asked her to come to New York to record some more originals where she'd perform a handful of songs that appeared on 278s in 1923 and this included the mournful song Pawn Shop Blues. Due to a lack of promotion and follow-up recordings, these early releases sold poorly. And with Lucille singing in the vaudeville style, it's suspected that OK weren't getting the blues diva they were actually looking for. Her relationship with the label ended, and she didn't record again for four years. In this time, it's unclear what Lucille was doing musically. Her story is often mixed in with what other singers of the time were doing, and while many of her peers like Ma Rainey were playing in touring vaudeville shows alongside the offensive parodies of the travelling minstrels and hokum blues players, there's nothing on record that proves she ever joined them. Despite the many rumours suggested she did, a later interview with her son revealed that she spent this period closer to home. Through the mid-1920s, Lucille Bogan wrote her songs at home in Birmingham accompanied by various piano players. She raised a son there with her husband and then raised a son alone when her husband realised that she was sleeping with one of her pianists. She would write her songs in Birmingham and then head up to Chicago to demo and record them, eventually striking up a relationship with Paramount Records, who'd released 478s in 1927. One of those records had the timely pairing of two songs called Wartime Blues and Women Don't Need No Men, and on another 10-inch she released one of her most influential tracks. She called it Sweet Petunia, and it had some pretty blatant imagery. 
Sweet Petunia was crude and cheeky, and while it's clear what the title's referring to, there were some other hidden lines in there too. There were allusions to sex work and same-sex attraction that seemed to be missed by the record label she was writing for. Sweet Petunia was a success, not just commercially, but it was influential enough to be covered by blues greats like Sonny Boy Williamson and B.B. King. The combination of influence and a growing name recognition led to Brunswick Records to sign her to a longer-term record deal. And between 1929 and 1931, Lucille Bogan released 578s on Brunswick. In his creative wellspring, she'd write some of her most subversive songs. Having a recording contract in the early days of the record industry could be interpreted as some kind of societal acceptance, but that didn't mean the late 1920s was a good time for Bogan. The songs in this period were about things like bootlegging booze and turning to sex work, not just to be edgy, but because employment was so insecure for black Americans that underground economies had to be created to transcend a world of prejudice. They were ripped off by low wages and long hours set by business owners who accepted the abolition of slavery, but replaced that system of oppression with a new one based on exploitation. When Bogan sang about the underground economies that surrounded her, they weren't always mournful, and they even often enjoyed a joy and freedom found in this work, like the cocky swagger of 1930s Ali Boogie, which clearly sang about the enjoyment of sex work. I boogied all night, all the night before. When I woke up this morning, I want to boogie some more. Oh, Ali Boogie, only thing I crave. It was the 1930s, and she was writing songs about sleeping around, having affairs, and experiencing joyful lesbian encounters. There were more innocent songs where she's begging to get arrested so she can sell her moonshine in prison, but then there were songs like Till the Cows Come Home. This song had her at her wildest, bragging about her own sexual prowess as much as the qualities of the two men she's fucking. You know both of my men, they are tight like that. They got a great big dick, just like a baseball bat. Ooh, fuck me. Do it to me all night long. I want you to do it to me, baby. Honey, till the cows come home. And while the sex may have been great, the state of the economy was another story. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange in market prices. In 1930, the Great Depression had formally started. The devastating economic downturn that followed that market crash obviously affected mainstream purchase power, but there was a trickle-down effect that's rarely discussed, one that impacted the underground economies that people around Lucille Bogan were a part of. She sang about this in 1932 with a struggle to find paying customers as a sex worker on Tricks Ain't Walking No More. I got up in the morning with the rising sun. Been walking all day and I ain't caught a one. All Tricks Ain't Walking. Tricks Ain't Walking No More. This was a time of great financial pressure that transcended her songwriting. Probably aware of the fact that the crass and crude would limit the audience of her music, Bogan made some changes in an attempt to stabilise her art form. Sometime after 1931, she moved to New York and began recording under the name of Bessie Jackson, 
hoping that a drastic change in sound and identity would be able to find her some paying work with broader appeal. As Bessie Jackson, her songs lessen their stance on the sexual and move towards themes of partying and heavy drinking, and reportedly she recorded more than 100 songs in this period, all of which were likely getting her a regular paycheck. But lost within these sessions was a song recorded as a joke and never intended for release, and it would become her most famous recording decades later. In 1935, she released this innocent version of a song called Shave em Dry. And while that remained the only publicly distributed version of the song at the time, there was a secret version that was uncovered for the world to hear over 50 years later. In 1991, a novelty compilation of the Dirty Blues titled Raunchy Business was released, and hidden on the CD was an alternate version of Shave Em Dry that Lucille and her engineers recorded as a gag among themselves. And this alternate cut featured missing lines like this. Your nuts hang down like a damn bell clapper, and your dick stands up like a steeple. Your goddamn asshole stands up like a church door, and the crab walks in like people. Ow! Oh, shit! Oh, well, 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 well. Woo! Baby won't shave and dry. This secret version of Shave Em Dry was secretly pressed to record and distributed with blank labels for playing at parties and sold under the counter at all-knowing record stores. You can hear the blast she was having in that recording, but it was only ever heard by this tiny network. All that fame as a forgotten novelty that was well distributed through the 90s was obviously useless to her at the time, and she'd stopped making music in the same year that Shave Em Dry was released. In the late 1940s, Lucille Bogan moved to L.A. where she remarried to a man who was over 20 years younger than her. She spent most of her time managing her son's band, using her experience navigating the early music industry to help him land paying gigs, and while she stopped performing and recording music, she did write one final song, one that she never sang on record. And these were the last words she ever wrote. I'm going to catch me a greyhound. And write until his tongue drags the ground. Because I've got another woman. And I know where she can be found. In LA in 1948, Lucille Bogan died of a heart problem at the age of 51. And sadly, all that musical subversion was not only lost to history, but completely ignored by the coroner and the police department. On her death certificate and gravestone, her occupation was listed as housewife. Lucille Bergen's songwriting was more than just raunchy comedy. It was true defiance in a time when black stories were routinely oppressed. In 1920s blues music, it operated far outside of the mainstream culture. In underground communities hosted at house parties and speakeasies. And it was here where Bogan and her peers could find a way to communicate. Lucille Bogan sang about the joy of sex, early queer culture, heavy drinking, sex work and sexual desire in a way that defied and opposed the strong arm of the mainstream culture in the 1930s. And that makes the first episode of this podcast series appear kind of stupid for praising the 60s counterculture for writing songs about fucking when Lucille Bogan and her peers have been doing that 40 years prior. 
When it comes to Bogan's form of obscenity, I think it transcends any potential censorship arguments. So I find it interesting to link that back to the country teasing's problems with obscenity in the current day. Even though the argument for art to break cultural norms might sound the same, I hope it's obvious how different the circumstances are. In the 30s and even in the obscenity trials of the 50s, the free speech argument existed in the hope that progressive social values could be attained by resisting conservative norms. But the free speech arguments of today's obscenities seem to be based around a fight to use words that target the marginalized. And that argument is ultimately conservative. It isn't about making a demand for new and better standards, but a demand to return them to the way things once were. All this energy spent on today's satire defense, maybe it could be better spent reviving true heroes of history. Like Lucille Bogan, someone who I think was the most radical songwriter who ever lived. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you think of that song? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought the lyrics to some of Nicki Minaj's songs yeah, were bad. Yeah. Like high school. But Lucille Bogan, Shave and Dry, 1935. I have never heard anything so graphic and just nasty. That it's, it's nasty. nasty. So move over, Nicki Minaj. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Old school okay. coming after yeah. you. Yeah.